Zach Winwichichi, and I'm not popular. I'm not popular. It's been about a year since I've recorded a podcast just by myself. But I feel like this format is actually kind of where the direction of my show started to form. Being completely alone with nothing but the imaginary you listening somewhere out there really kind of uh, motivated me to talk earnestly and passionately about some of the things that worried me in art and the stuff that kind of compromises season two as a whole now. So we're back. I'm not popular. The inspiration for this episode came to me about two weeks ago when I was on my way home from Nichome, and I had uh, met a really fascinating, lovely Russian man who kind of filled my heart with gloom. And I was wasted, and I woke up the next day so hungover I couldn't even go to the gym to sign up for a membership. So I was left to my devices with a headache, like feeling nauseous, lying on my futon. And for the first time in several years, I honored a time-old tradition of America, which is that of the binge viewing. I opened my laptop while I was lying on my side, and I consumed nine entire hours of Netflix content. That content being, of course, Korean director Hwang Dong-hyuk's 2021 Netflix TV limited series, Squid Game. And over the next few days, I realized it wasn't just my sloppy, hungover, gushy brain that had tritely selected the brightest Asian color recommended to it in the Netflix queue, but this series had managed to infect almost every single friend of mine and Twitter associate who's into current popular media. It was almost as if Netflix had produced some wooden block and slotted it into the cerebral unconscious of the world. Within days, I had friends suggesting that we do a Squid Game group Halloween costume. I saw enough tweets and images of this Korean robotic girl singing the Red Light Green Light song, and I had even more legions and legions of people I know from reality doing this disturbing Instagram face filter game where they pretend to do the red light, green light activity from the show. It was really like some sort of cultural hex had been cast and everybody had been brought in by its black magic. And I can't pretend that I'm not victim to it as well because I watched it immediately and consumed it all in literally one laying. And mostly for me... That kind of content that's inspired the same breathless obsession of viewing in me has been stuff like reality TV, like Keeping Up with the Kardashians. For some reason, I can just listen to Kim talk endlessly over salad and it becomes sort of like white noise. It's like the... It's like the texture of my day-to-day life in my apartment to have Kim there with me. But in terms of, like, written storytelling and like a scripted narrative. I think one of the few pieces of art that has ever made me consume it in the way that I did Squid Game is the 2002-2013 manga by Oku Hiroya. It's called Gantz. 
I was really obsessed with Gaunt's. I first remember my experience with it being that I watched both seasons of the pretty terrible anime while I had a fever, and after completing it, I immediately began to voraciously consume the manga. And at that time, it was being translated week to week, so... I spent much of my time in high school in this little Central Oregon coterie where my friends were always watching football games or I was always being carted around in a car into some suburb, like, endlessly reading this manga. I had the exact same sort of fever for it that I did when I sat and watched Squid Game in that one massive batch. And Gaunt's is a death game manga. The premise is that those who die can be ported into this room where they are given instructions to slaughter aliens with this uh, fetishistic body armor and weaponry, and it's their one chance at getting able to live again. Every week, characters are butchered, and lead characters, people you expect to be protagonists, are slaughtered and never to be heard from again. And the general high stakes of it all, and the tone, and the constant gamble and risk of death, really made me fascinated. And this wasn't the first time that an Asian piece of art depicting a game of death, a battle royale as it were, had totally riveted me. And in fact... A lot of the Asian media that came to uh, shape and preoccupy me as I was growing up were these death game manga and anime and video games that we now see reaching kind of a critical mass point in Squid Game. Hopefully it won't surprise any of you that I think Squid Game is absolutely revolting garbage and totally diabolical, menacing, and malevolent. But I don't necessarily think it's wretched for maybe the reasons people might expect. I don't think it's worth it to criticize Squid Game for bearing similarities to art that came before it, because I think to make the argument that it's merely a copy of something better is ineffectual and misrepresentative of the truly frightening and disgusting cultural horror that it represents to me. But before we can trace the line of impulse that takes my teenage infatuation with death games and stuff like Gaunt's all the way to what were left in the shrapnel with Squid Game, I think we have to walk through a lot of the art that brought us to this point. Element 1. A student is not a tangerine. On April 20th, 1999, two students at Columbine High School killed several of their classmates with heavy weaponry. And at the exact same moment, on April 21st, 1999, in Japan, 
Takami Koshun published his first and only novel, Battle Royale. I think it's probably easy to mount this to mere coincidence, but I think that it's impossible to say that these two events are entirely unrelated from one another. At the exact same moment when you account for time difference, at the very end of the millennium, two cultures at that exact moment began to manifest some of the primordial violent urges that have always existed deep in the human subconscious. And what's maybe most important here is that both of these cultural manifestations were performed on children. The act of violence that was thrust into public consciousness and asked to be reckoned with by an entire society, both of these things were especially gripping and visceral because it was young children and teenagers who were at the helm of it. In my eye, these are two of the most uh, (laughs) critical fissures of violence into the public consciousness that have occurred in the last 25 years. And, of course, Battle Royale hasn't, uh... Battle Royale doesn't quite have the same (laughs) consequences that Columbine did. Nonetheless, these were two mass pieces of culture that were seen and observed and thought about by entire populations. And they were both imagining and creating in the public eye this idea of uh, children committing violence and summoning these deeply buried parts of our urges and then enacting them on a public scale. So in the same way I imagine a lot of people watched Columbine unfold in the news cycle in front of them, I was completely possessed and arrested by Battle Royale when I first saw it in 8th grade. I had a uh, friend from my anime circle show it to me. He had a pirated DVD of it, I think from Vietnam, and he showed it to us after a sleepover. And I remember watching it through all the way the first time with my eyes basically taped open. And for the several weeks to come, I thought about Battle Royale every single day. It had stabbed me like so thoroughly through my understanding of art that I couldn't stop thinking about it for months, honestly. So Battle Royale became the first movie I think I ever truly loved with all of my heart. And the novel took a similar place in my consciousness. I had one really beat up copy of it with the front cover folded back that I would pass around to my friends at summer camp. And uh, I even loved the 15 volume manga adaptation, the sequel movie, and some of the spin-off manga that also exists. I was so obsessed with Battle Royale that I actually made a scrapbook in a composition notebook that I had, and I printed, like, rare photos I could find from, like, behind the scenes in, like, uh, English uh, translated cast interviews. Basically everything I I could, because it changed the way I started to see and experience art. Maybe in like the same way that Columbine changed the way that everybody looks at young men and guns and the school is a location that you enter and have to exist with, 
Battle Royale completely warped, like, my entire sense of media. And when I rewatched it last night, um, it was really easy to understand why. Uh, directed by Fukasaku Kinji, who has also directed one of my all-time favorite movies starring Miwa Akihiro and Mishima Yukio, uh, Black Lizard. The movie has a really blistering and beautiful sense of humanity that continues to push through despite its uh, sort of dystopian sci-fi setup. It feels, in every viewing I've ever had of it, to be something extremely intimate and close to the emotionality of being alive. It depicts the abduction of 42 junior high school students who are forced by their authoritarian government to play a death game in which they're all given a bag of random supplies with one weapon. They're strapped with explosive collars around their neck and told that they have to kill one another until only one is left standing. And, of course, this setup is so familiar to... uh, the media consumer now, that it barely even sounds novel upon description. But what makes Battle Royale so special is its extraordinarily intimate depiction of these young hearts whose existences have been abstracted into a three-day game, where they must choose to either fight to the death to live, or accept death at the hand of another. This is sort of the ultimate conundrum of being alive, and it's a theme that's also touched upon in art that's moved me like Evangelion, which is enacting the will to live. And Battle Royale sees this very recognizable struggle in every single one of its cast members, and the way it shows each of their perspectives and a whole gallery of how people react when they have to force themselves to live and have to force themselves to participate and interact with the world. I think it is a perfect abstraction of what it means to have to wake up every day and go to work and force yourself to be alive. And at the same time, I I think it's really beautiful and honest in a way that not a lot of other art is. The big barrier here is the spectacle of shock. Because, of course, watching 14- and 15-year-olds brutally murder each other in perfectly registered violence is shocking and fascinating in its own right. Fukusaku has always been a director who's really well-trained with violence, and in this movie they used rubber bullets that, uh, like little water balloons filled with blood. So when you see people getting shot in this movie, you see these little packets of blood exploding against them. Not to mention it's all theatrically staged, as if a no-spectacle almost, like a no-drama. The violence is so perfectly choreographed and compelling that it's easy to just stop there and appreciate it in this kind of like Tarantino, like Orientalist uh, fascination with the violent Asian eye. But if you can push a little bit further beyond that, what you have is a perfect representation of game theory. That being, a game is in front of you, and there are multiple agents who all have risk, and they all must make decisions. That's the uh, entire essence of uh, game theory, but it goes beyond that to work as sort of a frame for recognizing human life, where all of our decision-making 
and our cultural exercises are merely practices of the game. We all are engaged with opponents and other actors. We all have risk and we all have to make certain decisions in order to reap a potential reward. Literalizing game theory into this life-or-death blood match isn't just like a a fun, like, schlocky sci-fi setup in order to get to the point of observing teens committing violence on each other. It's actually establishing a virtually perfect diorama of having to coexist in society, where there are rules set on top of you, and there's constant risk, and of course, as anyone in this current moment knows, not that much reward. Sometimes the reward is just getting to continue to live. But it makes sense that Fukusaku would be kind of concerned with depicting life as this game theory blood death match. Because when he was growing up in World War II, him, along with the rest of Japanese boys, like too young to be soldiers, they had to comply with manufacturing for weapons assembly and what have you while their country was being bombed, and he recalls being forced by the rules of the game of adult society to help um, contribute to this war while bombs are being dropped on his factories and several of his classmates dying and having to hide underneath their bodies and then clean them up the next day. So drawing on his memories of war and utilizing this idea of game theory as a replacement for the struggle and toil of having to contribute and exist with society where everything is decided for you and you merely have to play by the rules of what's going on around you, we kind of have this um, atmosphere. It's quite, I don't know quite how to say it. It's like this almost like psychedelic atmosphere of young people on the cusp of their youth at their most beautiful where they all have to reconcile with the rules of society, their own will to live, and what they're going to do to continue that will in this enormous, like, psychedelic, like, haze where humans are constantly reacting in the most truthful and shocking and awkward and beautiful ways. So, of, of course, you can, like, go the Tarantino route and just, like, enjoy the, the bloody shock of it all. But I think what I've always been obsessed with Battle Royale for is this idea of people who have society literalized to the extremity and watching them try to figure out what to do. And what they do is so compelling. It's, I think, one of the most, like painfully truthful like images of people in trouble and like people trying to figure out how to make their lives work that has ever been put to film and there are so many of these instances I could go on just listing them all but the first one that comes to mind is the character of Chigusa who is a uh, track runner and after she's been wounded and is uh, in the arms of the boy that she's always had a crush on but never been able to confess her feelings for. She doesn't, you know, give this, like, um, romantic, like, Tristan and the Solde, like, uh, monologue to her lover, but she says, you always look so cool. 
That's what she says to him in her dying words. And when I saw this in a theater in Portland when I was like 15 or 16, everybody laughed at that line, and I've never thought it was funny. And when I rewatched it last night, I thought it was even less funny, and I began to tear up. Because, of course, somebody who is having their entire lives reduced to this game and having every part of their existence radicalized into this three-day span and these rules, like, of course, like, the, the way they frame their feelings and their dreams around them, it's not going to be elegant or beautiful. It's going to be so bony and, like, elbowy and awkward. And it's really the ultimate truth of these teenagers in love. It's like, that is what they would say. And I've always been torn apart and had my heart broken by the moments like that. Oh, the train's going by. It's a good time to open another drink. Kampai. Some of the other moments that I feel really obsessed with that show the human struggle so perfectly is um, a lot of the bodily functions that exist in this movie. Like, piss and periods is, like, always a matter that's coming up. Um, Mitsuko, who's kind of the um, the harlot of the movie, who is uh, using her sexual confidence in order to play the game, she gets found out for lying because someone finds her tampon in the toilet. Like, when you reduce, like, life to these little rules, like, of course, like, the tampon would show up, and it never does in anything else. So that tampon in the toilet, the, the single line about it has always really fascinated me. And the novel is even better in this respect. Um, in my mind, the, the film is virtually perfect on its own, but the novel really does a lot of excellent work to flesh out almost every single one of these characters, no matter how insignificant in beautiful, pristine detail of uh, their reactions to this game of life. And uh, my favorite, which does not appear in the film, is the one gay character who uh, decides to play the game <laughs> by like uh, following around the really competitive student who is uh, very clearly set to be the potential winner. And he decides just to stalk him for the duration of the game. And uh, at one point, he, like, listens to him, like, pissing. He, like, thinks that he's pissing, and he spends, like, three minutes just, like, listening to him pee, thinking about how hot it is that he can pee for so long until he realizes he's in a danger zone and his collar explodes and it kills him. And um, I think maybe when I was, like, woke in high school, I was like, that's homophobic. But now I'm like, that's so based and true. <laughs> so I've always been uh, really impressed that... Uh, Takami Koshun had the gay eye, not the gay eye, but, like, the gay understanding to uh, recognize that, of course, like, the gay man playing this uh, shrunken game of life would spend his final moments imagining he's listening to some straight guy pee and then fantasizing about it. <laughs> and basically every character here is totally riveting, and I could go off about all of them, really, but... The lighthouse sequence is another perfect uh, simulacrum diorama in which we watch the entire essence of female friendship boil down into some mix of jealousy, suspicion, and 
unbridled fury where a misunderstanding about poison leads to their extremely sadistic uh, slaughter of each other with machine guns in the kitchen. And especially when you think about the fact that this is all with like 13 and 14 year old girls, it's like, this is reality. Like, this is truly like the pain and heartache and harshness of all brutal living, like boiled down to girls like killing each other in the in the lighthouse and girls telling their their beautiful unrequited love in their dying words that he always looked so cool. Like this is what's real. This is what's real. And what I think one of the boldest things that this movie does, aside from all of its perfect, unblinking registry of how humans would react in the way that we do every day in society, but, you know, just put it onto this stage, is that it ends in a way that isn't bleak and hateful. It ends with, Hashire, run. Go out there and run. Um, two of the characters are basically able to... Um, escape unscathed through uh, some plot stuff that's not quite worth describing here. And uh, they flee to America. They, they flee their authoritarian Asian society to America. And Fukusaku, despite having to move the corpses of his classmates off his body in military warehouses in World War II, despite the economic bubble having popped in Japan and leaving a total state of desolation. He doesn't say that there's no answer here, and he doesn't even blame it on the authoritarian government. It's much more existential and about, like, the rules of reality than that. But what he says, despite all of it, is to run. It's just to go forth and live life in the most blistering and beautiful and burning way you possibly can. And to run! And I just feel like having somebody manifest the entire drama of human history in this tiny scale of minutia, and then to walk away with it with an optimistic image of people running into their future. I mean, I just, I can't imagine that there's anything better than that, really. Element 2. Destroying things is much easier than making them. thus been replicated endlessly 
this is true, of course, for Asia, where um, a multitude of, <laughs> to say the least, a multitude of uh, similar art has existed. Like I mentioned earlier, Gansu is uh, one of these uh, leading death game manga that kind of uh, plays on some of the same ideas. Dead Man Wonderland, um, th there is a recent series on Netflix that isn't the one we're talking about today. And uh, Juni Tyson is uh, one as well. Of course, when somebody has a really beautiful and flaming idea about how life works, it can end up as its own genre. I think in some ways, Fukusaku kind of knew this was going to happen. Because when he cast for Battle Royale, he cast a Beat Takashi, who I've uh, spoken previously about uh, with Mikey on my uh, male violence episode. I forgot what it's called. But um, at that time, uh, Beat Takashi had been doing lots of game shows. So his appearance in Battle Royale is really uncanny because it lends kind of this awkward reality to the fact that these death games could become commonplace. And, of course, the Battle Royale movie came out, I think, like, in 2001, a little bit after Columbine. And, um... Thinking about how this movie exists as kind of a, a cultural speaking piece, he seemed to know, Fukusaku did, that what he was um, depicting in his film was ultimately going to become a common way for Japanese artists to express a lot of their frustration and uh, sense of malaise with what's going on around them. And obviously the format is successful and interesting enough that these ideas, al although not necessarily unique to the original novel or to the film, they'd existed before in things like The Most Dangerous Game and, and what have you, but... Um, it's not surprising to me that these ideas would start to filter into the Western consciousness in a less flattering form. Whereas Japan kind of had the cultural benefit of exercising this ancient mass demon of violence inside the soul through art, what had happened in America was with Columbine, the art had been physically practiced upon living flesh. And so sensitivities around it are quite different than they probably were in Japan. And although there were several mock incidents, um, or I guess I should say copycat incidents, after the release of the film, I don't think that Japan had to really reconcile with the actual corporeal and material reality of the ideas in Battle Royale in the same way that Americans did after Columbine. So I don't really think it's surprising that when uh, Japan's very muscular and precise manifestation of these uh, violent urges began to leak over to America that it took a uh, really messy and gloopy form. And of course what I'm talking about is the 2008 novel by Suzanne Collins, The Hunger Games, and its ensuing film adaptation in 2012, starring uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Basically, anyone who was uh, my age around the time that The Hunger Games came out knew what a cultural fascination it was. 
even I read it very quickly, all three books. I think I read them in, a, like, a, the span of a month. And I vividly recall, basically, everybody around me in my high school being similarly obsessed to this um, this death game, as people are now with Squid Game. I vividly remember the first time I ever saw The Hunger Games was actually uh, right before it was formally released in theaters. I had a friend who had a torrent client, and we watched the uh, whole movie. We watched a cam of it in a uh, Safeway deli on her computer. And not only were high schoolers, like, really preoccupied with this, it had the sort of twilight effect where this literature meant for teenagers also struck a nerve with um, mothers and older women. And for a moment, The Hunger Games, as an entire franchise, was a major preoccupation of the American mindset. I saw it two times in theaters, and of course that one time in the Safeway. And the whole time I had never really liked it, because I had been first disposed to Battle Royale, so I had kind of... um an angry art gay nerve towards it when I was like a freshman in high school. And I, I uh, was really desperate to say that this is the inferior version. And I do still think that that's true. I don't think that Susan Collins necessarily copied the premise of, uh, of Battle Royale into the Hunger Games. But nonetheless, I think that they are both um, exorcisms of the same cultural phantom. And Battle Royale is far superior, whereas the Hunger Games is um, one of the first suggestions that this art form has a set of tools to use against the public that are really quite evil. The Hunger Games and Battle Royale virtually have the same setup. Um, The Hunger Games depicts... I can't believe I'm talking about this right now. The Hunger Games is like another authoritarian government that abducts children and forces them to kill each other as a means of forcing order upon the oppressed citizenship. And the big added invention here is that there's a reality TV element and members of the elite upper-class capital get to watch and delight in the mutual slaughter of these young people on TV. That single additional element has kind of been praised and obsessed with over by the critical reception to this franchise, but I think Battle Royale does it in a much, uh, <laughs> I really don't mean to be doing the Battle Royale is better than Hunger Games thing, but lest I, lest I am, I, I have to be true to myself, because Battle Royale does the same thing, it's like, and it does it in a much uh, more subversive and meaningful way, which is in the casting of Beat Takeshi, a popular game show TV host, like, cast as the coordinator of the games, whereas uh, The Hunger Games is extremely ham-fisted in the way that it says government is bad, reality TV is bad, and it instructs that upon you and then does virtually the same process of what the people in the capital are supposed to be doing. The people in the capital are supposed to be delighting over these games, And virtually, the effect of The Hunger Games, both the novel and the film, is that you experience it, and you are also delighting in the thrill of the game. And honestly, this wouldn't bother me 
because I think that the concept is innately thrilling. Like, this concept doesn't piss me off when I'm watching stuff like Death Race or, like, Mad Max Thunderdome. Like, I'm not so retarded that I can't understand the immediate appeal of what this game theory setup does. Because I think innately, it does appeal to a lot of our basic instincts. And whereas Battle Royale has more of the foresight to apply it to a human experience, this does not do the same thing. The Hunger Games pretends to understand and represent the human experience, but what it is is merely blockbuster fodder, both in the novelization, which is written in the most atrocious format of all time, first-person present tense, and the film adaptation. They both imagine that they are making greater critique and are commenting on something larger than what's beyond the innate thrill of the game, and they're lying to you about it. And that lie is in fact the whole function of The Hunger Games. It's the entire point. Whereas Battle Royale uses the game theory, life as game experience, to shrink human experience into a really tightly compacted and extremely visceral scene, what we have in The Hunger Games is the same game theory, life as a game, put into the shortest terms possible, but instead of using it to convey the extremity in human emotionality, what we get instead is pale, nothing critique of nothing. The capital, which are the oppressors who stage this game and are forcing the working class or whatever to play the game and kill each other on TV for the entertainment of all, is perhaps the most like thinly sketched antagonist of all time. They stand in place for a fear of authority, but the authority has no characteristic whatsoever. If you were asked to describe what the capital stands for, or where it comes from, or what it means, you would just say that it's bad. It's villainous. They are evil because they're greedy and they're fat and they like to eat food. And they wear Lady Gaga costumes, which apparently is, you know, decadent and evil. It's, uh, there, there's a really atrocious scene when they're training for the Hunger Games or whatever, and it shows them going to this uh, meal where people eat so much, and then they take puking pills so that they can eat more. And honestly, it's like, okay, great. This is the most obvious, like, critique of nothing that could possibly happen, because the, 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 there's no finger being pointed in any specific direction. And this is the, you know, categorical misuse of this genre, is to try to use it to make comment about government and about politic. Because that is innately what life is not about. And the game theory premise of Battle Royale and this genre in total understands that when you are reducing life to just a game, that it should, in the you know, compressed portion of the game's runtime represent life in that moment. But because The Hunger Games is so preoccupied with making this vague, hazy, gaseous statement about government and authority, 
you can tell that it's lying and being mistruthful about life in general. Because, of course, like, class oppressions and race oppressions and all this stuff, like, of course, that, like, factors into how life really works. But the ultimate battle of being alive and existing in a society is motivating yourself to continue living and to find beauty in what you do. So to molest this very pure form of shrinking life into the game and to use it as political critique is already evil enough. But where the Hunger Games goes so far as to do is to then critique something that doesn't exist at all. Because the capital has no reality and no recognizable feature that anyone can, you know, use to critique, or there's no political use of this even. So what it does is it becomes this vaguely affirming and easily consumable piece of trash where by engaging in the media and recognizing that authority bad, that's the whole answer. And you don't have to go any deeper than that, and you don't have to realize any truths about your own dark nature or the fact that if you're dying, the thing you're going to say is, you always looked so cool to the guy who's holding you in his arms. Instead, you're going to do the feigned melodramatic speech with PETA. Okay, PETA, one of the most unappealing, uninteresting romantic fascinations of any character in anything I've ever seen ever. The whole experience of The Hunger Games is its inspecificity. There's not one really, like, truthful moment of living. Like, everything is ambiguous and vague and hazy and swampy. Everything from, you know, Peta, who is this, you know, catch-all, like, YA romance-like character, or, like, Gale, who is the exact same mode but is, like, a little hotter than the other, to the racially ambiguous naming of these characters, like, Rue, or Prim, or glimmer (laughs) like the whole thing has this entire like fog of non-existence and it's easy to suspect that the motivations are just you know capitalist and to you know make money off of like what's happening but I really do believe Suzanne Collins thought she was on to something when she was writing this you know anti-authoritarian like governmental critique and I just I don't buy it because there's nothing there's nothing here and In some ways, I actually do like the first film of this series because um, there's some neat artistic flourishes with the shaky cam to mask the violence uh, because that's the only way you can, you know, register violence in the YA American view of things. You can't show people getting shot with blood bullets like in Battle Royale, so you have to shake the camera up. So I guess that's kind of cool. It has like a documentary, like a reality TV feel, so there's one point for you. But the overall essence and reality of this gloopy thing that everybody was obsessed with is that ideas from the East about how to reconcile with life in the format of a game somehow leak into America. Like, they come through some fucking Asian pipeline and begin to stink up and saturate a population that has no idea what to do with these things. And what they end up doing is this cultural joke. Like, this honest joke on the audience where violence and the innate struggle of living and the day-to-day peril of everyday existence is 
forsaken for an easy to accept, easy to swallow, mouthable thing. Like some trollop, like some little truffle that you can swallow down because it recognizes that something is bad, but it won't tell you what it is and it won't tell you how to deal with it. And it's completely inspecific to anyone who's ever lived. So I guess you could say that The Hunger Games is kind of like the first introduction. Maybe not ever, but at least in the contemporary mindset to how we deal with the death game genre in the West. And as time goes on, things only get more distressing and bleaker. Element 3. The will of God. 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 So, if things um, didn't seem that they could get worse in the Hunger Games, I assure you they can. Because in the wake of the cultural disaster that that cursed media franchise left in the hearts of teenagers and suburban mothers, we got something worse than the Hunger Games could have ever dreamed to be. We got fucking video games. Probably the earliest example of this is the less insidious Danganronpa, which is, um, (sighs) I can't believe I'm talking about this on a recorded podcast that anyone can listen to. It's a Battle Royale-style video game where students are rounded up in this post-apocalyptic high school, and you have to figure out who the killer is every week. And if somebody can kill everyone else off or something, then they get to live. Honestly, um, the, the game and its ensuing manga and anime adaptations have been very popular. I never really got into it personally. But it is a good signifier for where things are about to turn. What's important about the advent of video games into the Battle Royale death game genre is that video games almost intrinsically, at least multiplayer competitive ones, have a function of providing this same kind of rush that I was just speaking about, which is the rush of applying game theory to a model of life and seeing both the glory and ecstasies of living at your fullest potential met also with the risk and potentiality of infinite void in the face of death. Mostly this is on um, a a less existential scale. Mostly it's in games uh, that probably people who are from my generation are more familiar with, like Call of Duty or Halo and competitive uh, first-person shooters where you have to annihilate the enemy and win on behalf of your team in order to uh, get that rush of victory. And this, of course, can be shrunken down to stuff as simple as Super Smash Bros, where you have to um, literally smash people off the side of the stage in order to be the victor or to sports games. But overall, like this kind of competitive ecstasy is unique to video games because simulating death and destruction is something that you can't 
quite do in typical sports like, um, I don't know, soccer or basketball. So the influx of death as sport in video games is, you know, vaguely meaningful to me, if only because it kind of begins gesturing towards how this uh, battle royale instinct kind of sinks in with the American cultural morris. Lots of people will tell you that playing video games is a waste of time, and anyone who is engaged in these kinds of uh, activities is being a decadent loser and um, neckbearding their way to a feudal lifestyle. But I honestly don't really find um, these competitive sort of games to be so troublesome for young men. I think it's uh, healthy, if anything, to be able to exercise these urges anywhere. So... I don't really have like the same decadent prescription that a lot of people do when they're critiquing these kind of video games. But I do think that when it comes to implementing the actual battle royale genre, that's where things get a little sticky. Because when you look at something like a Danganronpa, this is basically like a mystery visual novel. And in order to simulate this game theory deathmatch, you have to do a lot of, like, Phoenix Wright-style problem-solving. It's, like, um, in some ways, it's kind of, like, similar to, like, point-and-click mystery games, so it requires a lot of cognition. And as for, like, the first-person shooters and stuff I mentioned earlier, like Call of Duty or Halo, like, those kind of games are also not really in, like, the same vein as, like, a fight until you're the last man standing. It's a little bit more vague than that, so I don't really think it has the same effect that people might imagine it to. But what I am really skeptical about is the specific battle royale genre that has uh, come to be very popular in the last few years. And the first inkling of this was PUBG, which I believe was initially only released on a uh, computers like you couldn't like play this on your xbox or whatever until a little bit later and PUBG is such a blatant recreation of battle royale that they even came to later include the character models where you could dress as the girl who uh, does the explanation of the rules in the original film by the way that's uh the voice actress for oscar soryu and so what we basically have is a scale-to-size reproduction of Battle Royale with the one major exception that you're no longer viewing and processing it as a means of understanding your spirit, but rather you are performing the actions as a means of accomplishing a singular emotion. And I've mentioned game theory quite enough at this point, but... The entire idea of setting up games in the way that games sort of work as a token for a lot of the ways we interact with each other is that you put up risk so you can gain some kind of reward. And, of course, the male ideology will give lots of emotional reward for any sort of sense of victory. And putting that into the vestige and sort of this like veneer and fake sheen of the shrunken battle royale universe in which you are putting forth the risk of life and death, doing this on the scale of 
constantly repeating it with only the imaginary stakes, I think, is quite unsettling. And not for the reasons that I think, oh, video games are bad, like these lead to violence or something. And I don't even think they like lead to a lack of spiritual integrity or anything like that. What I'm really more concerned about here is that we have this medium that I think is so proficient in exasperating the problems of being alive. And instead of swallowing the pain of it and working through it with art or what have you, we're taking sort of the Hunger Games route of making it something easy and simple, because in essence, the the whole premise is easy and simple. And instead of catalyzing that to make some greater purpose for the life of the soul, what we're doing is we're providing easy satisfaction. I'm hardly even scandalized by the fact that these games are like played en masse and that lots of people derive satisfaction from them. Really, what upsets me is the rape of the art form itself. Because what we originally saw with Battle Royale is something beautiful, and now what we have is the precisely same premise being recycled in this infinite feedback loop for simple, easy, orgasmic pleasure that I think, honestly, comes from the Hunger Games. I feel like when culture in America mass-accepted the death game as a genre, especially as one that was geared towards, you know, YA audiences and what have you, I feel like that sort of opened this terrifying chamber of guff where we were introduced to what this format can provide for you sensually without any of the actual meaningful content and emotional work that exists within it. So I feel like the entire beautiful landscape that Battle Royale provides of the human existence in Micro has just been perverted initially by the Hunger Games into a fake and appeasing corporate march where something is bad, but, like, we're not going to say what's bad, we're not going to tell you what to do about it. And then that sort of acceptance and that bored, monotone, you know, okayness with it, of course leads to something like a video game. And at least with stuff like Danganronpa, like I said earlier, because it's still in the Japanese tradition, it's still more or less, like, based around issues of the heart. But when you extract it to something competitive instead of something like an RPG, which is the ideal form of all video games, what you get is, like, this terrifying, like, Twin Peaks of Return, Episode 2, I guess it's Episode 3, like, Dougie at the Casino fantasy where, you know, Mr. Jackpots. It's like you keep pulling the lever and you keep getting what you want, and... It doesn't give you anything else than that. And I, I know I'm repeating myself, but I, I really don't think it, it's that evil at the end of the day. I just It breaks my heart to see what the genre, that even in its lowest form in, like, Gons and stuff, which is really just pulpy action, even that, like, deals with the innate trauma of having to live. Like, but instead, stuff like PUBG just gives you a way to recognize your own sorrows, and then process it through meaningless exchange of the return and get that is competitive multiplayer games.
And the worst of all of it, worse than anything we've brought up yet, is that the YA impulse continues to thread through all of this and results in the absolute most dire state of video games, which is Fortnite. I I wonder if this is the first time I've said that word on my podcast, but I feel like I've brought something evil into the room and now it's hovering above me. Fortnite. Fortnite is a game for babies and toddlers and children. I mean, it's found its audience and streamers really like it, but whenever I see the plastic cartoony graphics and the words like Tomato Town and it's almost holy worship among early Zoomers, Fortnite to me is sort of this dire plastic nightmare of Fisher-Price toys, and it's staging the same diorama as Battle Royale and everything else we've talked about today, but it's reduced to the smoothest and flattest, absolutely repulsive, spaghetti-armed nightmare that it possibly could. What this does to the genre is infinitely worse than what it probably does to the, you know, malleable young minds that play it. What it does is it it reduces the intricacies and the capacity to see the human heart in its most naked. And what it does is it turns on to some fucking jack-off machine. It's like a helmet strapped to your face playing VR porn as it, like, milks the most satisfying elements of the death game and then jerks your dick off with plastic Fisher-Price toys. It honestly feels like infinite jest. Like, this feels like David Foster Wallace. And maybe somebody is going to be like, oh, that's annoying that, like, you would, like, of course you would say that. Like, of course it's... But it is. This is infinite jest. Like, this is you drooling on the couch and dying as the most simple, enjoyable things about this fucking genre, which were perfectly used at first and are now used at blank political critique and as lifeless pleasure provided to you in easy continuum it just this is fucking infinite jest and of course it can't just be this like maybe if it was just this like i would be like okay but like now they're doing like national i'm not exactly this is real they are doing national geographic martin luther king jr exhibitions in Fortnite. like they're doing like dynamic like race education in Fortnite. Because this is what the genre is capable of doing, is when you reduce life to something as simple as a game and you try to press it for its extremity, what you can either do is embrace it for its radicalism and see all the awkward breaking parts of it, like in Battle Royale and even in somewhat to the fucking Hunger Games, or you can use it as a blank political education tool and jerk-off machine like people do in Fortnite. And unsurprisingly, this brings us... Right back to Japan, where um, we had another death game manga. This one's called Kamisama no Yutori, or As the Gods Will in English. And it was adapted in, I think, 2014 or 2015 by Mike Takashi, who is probably best known for his really wonderful films Audition and Ichi the Killer. And he did a production of this manga, which follows... Surprise, a bunch of high schoolers who are whisked into a game where they have to fight for their lives. And this one sets the stage as um, 
these high schoolers having to play children's games, like Daru Masanga Koronda, which is uh, probably more recognizable to Americans as red light, green light. And they have to play children's games in order to fight for their right to exist. As the manga goes on, it's eventually revealed that the entire reality that exists um, for these games to happen was created by a lonely god. And um, in the several iterations of the manga to follow, it becomes um, more and more esoteric and complicated as a kind of like these like endless gods are like constantly like recreating and restaging the games in order to select people to uh, bring them company and to cure their loneliness. And what I really like about Mike's adaptation of the manga, aside from the kind of really fun and gutsy artfulness of it with uh, people's heads exploding into red beams and the really vicious violence of it, is he understands the impulse from the original manga towards like these endless gods recreating these games as a cure for loneliness. And he puts it in these italics that make it not so obvious, but kind of an encroaching and unsettling sensation as you watch the film. So as um, the genre has begun to uh, produce its disastrous feedback loop in America, Japan is already kind of like reconsidering it and imagining that there is some greater agent spurring people into observing and watching and participating in these endless death games, these small cycles and stages of life in miniature. And there's something really frightening about it. And as the gods will, seems to innately know that even through all the guck and awful shonen manga tropes of both the movie and the manga. Because that's ultimately what these video games are and why, maybe I failed to articulate this so far, but why they kind of disturb me so much, especially Fortnite, is because these are created by little gods who are providing a cure for loneliness, and you play them for these bits of endorphins and satisfaction. And the whole point of the death game genre, this whole battle royale thing, which is to make you question and understand why you're alive and to encourage you to run, instead what it does is it fucking placates you. It leaves you castrated, and it milks you into the system. (laughs) Like, it basically is just sucking you right back in. It's um, a little bit of Mark Fisher, isn't it? And it's so frightening to me that it seems like there's no lower than we can go. (laughs) I've already said that by the time we got to the video game section of this, but... I feel like all of these impulses accumulate in something I spent nine hours on my side watching two weeks ago. Element 4 Piggy Bank So here we are. Uh, 
here we've made it, everybody. From the very beginning of this journey, I've been uh, promising my thoughts on Squid Game. Because that's what you people want. And I'll give it to you. Squid Game is fucking awful. It's <laughs> wretched. Um, I have not spent so much time watching something that I do not care for at all since I watched Finding Prince Charming as homework for somebody else's podcast. I don't know where to begin. I've been speaking for easily an hour at this point, um, and laying all the context necessary for me to really explain myself about why I think this is one of the worst things I've ever seen, and... Yet I am still speechless and awed in front of how much I dislike this piece of shit. So I guess I'll just start with what it is. It is a uh, South Korean Netflix original TV show directed by the guy I said earlier. Don't remember his name, so why don't I just look that up really quick? I think it's something. Um, Something... Something, I don't want to say anything because it, it might... Okay. Huang Donghyuk, who has done some other stuff. He's done some movies about uh, deaf or mute orphans who are raped or something like that. And he um, allegedly conceived of this in 2009. And what it is, is a series about the capitalist woes of South Korea. A show featuring a ragtag group of underdogs who have been frowned upon by society, are deeply in debt, and are invited into a game um, in which their participation will make them millions and millions of dollars. They're proposed to by a very handsome man who plays a game where you have to slap a um, an envelope, and if you... Uh, uh, I don't want to talk about this, to be honest. I don't want to talk about this at all. And I've already gone this far, and I don't want to say anything. <laughs> okay, it's a fucking death game. Okay, it's another death game show. It's another death game thing. It's it's the same thing that I've already been talking about. These poor, sad people are all grouped together and they have to play children's games so that they can win a lot of money and be the last man standing and that's what it is. That's what it is. Um, in Battle Royale, the shady organization was the government. In The Hunger Games, it was the same thing. Um, in PUBG and in Fortnite, unless I'm like missing some retarded lore that I don't care about, it's just you playing the game. And in uh, Kamisama no Yutori, it's God. And in this one, it's just some rich people who like to watch uh, poor people fight for pleasure because um, the luxuries of being rich have grown too boring, and now they like to do this. So that's what it is. That's what it is. And everyone has like some little stake on their life, and every time someone dies, their uh, equivalent net worth drops into the piggy bank. And there's also a cop um, whose brother played and won the game. And now the cop is infiltrating the island and everybody wears uh, pink little suits with masks that have stuff on them like shapes. And 
all the contestants wear like um in japanese they look like the the pe outfits I, i'm imagining it's the same in korea like they wear like the school exercise uniforms so i need to explain myself on why i think this is as diabolical as it is because as i've already explained when i was talking about pubg and fortnite is that i and the hunger games too is that i you know completely understand the enjoyable impulse of these death games and of course there's something riveting and fascinating and it makes for entertainment that is easy to watch because it shrinks real life into something small and consumable with tangible result consequence and clearly stated reward so of course i understand why this show is at best a brainless mind fodder and i mean that's what i did I had my brain completely soaked in, you know, the retrograde juices of alcohol as it was, like, rotting my insides. And in my lulled state, I watched nine hours of it at once. So I get it. Yeah, I mean, it is by all means a a fine piece of, of popcorn. But this is just not merely a piece of popcorn, because this little kernel is painted in the Netflix nice colors. It's the pink and the blue, and the bright yellow, and the bright, vibrant, Photoshop-saturated colors that populate Tumblr GIFs. It catches your eye, and it draws you in, and it sucks you into the format that we have at this point exasperated. It brings you into the simulacrum, and it presents its narrative. And this is where things begin to get truly unfortunate, because every character here is less real than every other character we've encountered up until this point. All of these individuals that populate the game, from the main character who is a down-on-his-luck bad dad who um, lives with his mom who has to sell vegetables, to the corporate lawyer who is really in over his head because of all of his bad deals, to the North Korean escapee, to the immigrant Indian, nice, big-hearted guy. These are the people, uh, along with some others, that are thrown into the death game, and we are asked to use them as our mechanisms into learning the theme of the show, and hopefully what any piece of art is aiming for is to learn about yourself as well. But to ask any person to learn something from these absolute cardboard cutouts these cliches, is a fool's errand. You can't learn anything from these people because none of them are real. They're all ideas. They're tropes and they're guidelines to what people look like in the real world. They're a list of scenarios and situations that accumulate into one figure. And, of course, all art is vulnerable to this instinct as well, and it's very rare for any piece of media to truly eschew the the urge to generalize and to paint with these, you know, broad, empty strokes. And even to some degree, I think that Battle Royale does as well. There's certainly, like, the jock stereotype. Like, there's, like, the the icy bitch stereotype. There's the sexual woman, like, the harlot. Like, They all have their archetypes behind them. It would be wrong to say that those aren't there. 
But as I already said, what Battle Royale is special for is that it recognizes that, yes, these archetypes are there, but how they're put under pressure and how we see them begin to misbehave and make those awkward confessions and to think about what they do when they die and their pleas towards God, those moments reveal that Yes, like, ultimately, everybody is victim to the way we consume media. Like, we're also conditioned by endless narrative around us that our own lives begin to replicate it. And we all do take shapes that are culturally instructed to us. This is, you know, the Paulian sexual personae. But Squid Game ardently refuses to allow any of these characters even one pound of living flesh to their character. Their scenarios and their settings and their motivations are clearly and well-established, um, if not painfully bludgeoned over you in the second episode where we're treated to ten minutes of each character having their woes elucidated to you. But as the show goes on and they're put into this simulacrum of life as game, none of them really grow beyond that. Sure, we see the protagonist like become like stronger and um, more understanding of the value of life in some way. But their reactions to being put in this state is one of utter placidity. It's even worse than the video games I was mentioning earlier, because at least those evoke sensation, and they evoke reaction, and they give you some sort of pleasure when you're inhabiting the role and making your kills in the game. But in the case of Squid Game... These characters are never more than shadowy archetype. And I think by far the worst of all of them is Ali, the Indian immigrant who is uh, abused by the Korean system and is underpaid and like being, he kept his pay and he has the heart of gold and is so trusting and is like bumbling in Korean language skills. And the instinct is very obvious because the show is beginning to make a point to you that oh, immigrants are treated bad here. And I mean, that's a noble thing to say, but that's merely creating a sentence. That's stating a fact. What else is there to do after that? So we understand that South Korea is abusing its immigrants and underpaying them and creating harsh living standards for them. And maybe somehow there are people watching this on Netflix who don't, understand that, you know, sometimes immigrants have it worse than natives in a country. Like, maybe those people are there. But even if you are able to impart this idea on them, then what do you want? Do you just want to say, oh, that's bad, and then move on? Because that's what this show does. And it doesn't just do it to the extent of that single character. This is the entire narrative thrust of the show. It's pointing to something in the same way The Hunger Games does, saying, oh, this is bad. And then proceeding with absolutely no moral conclusion whatsoever. To me, I felt almost taunted and ridiculed by the show. Produced on Netflix and mass circulated to an audience of what I think I read today is like something over like a billion users or like something like that or like a hundred million, like some large unfathomable number. It's putting in our face that the capitalist situation is dire and people are struggling to make things happen and then using it as a form of entertainment 
and then going nowhere with it, making no prescription, and making no true revelation other than, this is bad. Now what? The show just adores slathering you with harsh reality of truth, of the dire situation of people who escaped North Korea to South Korea, or of the immigrant who's abused by his workplace, or the father who just can't make things work, or the overworked business employee superstar who is now turned to evil because of the situation around him. We see all of these things, but it turns kind of into what American Psycho ridicules. It turns into the absolutely castrated state in which we just kind of accept these things and continue on business as usual. And for this to be marketed with the most obnoxious color scheme of all time, basically curated and chosen by the same kind of elites that are the antagonists of this show for everybody to watch en masse and then to create auto-content for of endlessly getting these very attractive actors and actresses to recreate the games for YouTube videos or people to make speculation videos of how you would survive Squid Game. It, the show is most evil for it merely reproducing the situation in which it seems to be criticizing. The dull-eyed stare it has towards, like, these oppressed people in the show feels so jeering and taunting when I understand the context in which this came out. As a form of battle royale media, as a piece of death game television, this betrays every fundamental aspect of what battle royale originally stood for, which was to use this format to evoke humanity at its limits, in its most radical form, in its peak glistening emotionality as the sun rises over the island and you're seeing the person you love for the last time and you're confessing to him in a horrible, broken, awkward language that you love him by calling him cool. And instead what we have here is this aura of being scolded, as if it's my fault that all of this is happening, as if I'm responsible for all of this, and that it dares to make you feel this way and make you feel complicit in the capitalist slave trade, and that we're all stuck in, you know, this rat race for the piggy bank money, that it makes you feel somewhat culpable for it, without giving you any way out and without giving you any humanity is an absolute betrayal and molestation of the genre. Not once does almost any character here have any motion in which their feeling is pushed to an extreme or uncomfortable edge. We see people acting in a way that is depraved or inhumane, but we've already come to expect this. And Every other Battle Royale film I've ever seen is quite smart in getting this kind of obnoxious, uh, like, hole, this, this little ditch in the road out of the way early. In Battle Royale, you see people freaking out right away and reacting poorly. And even in the Hunger Games with the cornucopia sequence, you see people begin to behave less like humans. And yet, that is the only true extremity we get in the entire sequence of the show. Not once does this dare to look in the eye of something as powerful as love. 
Not once is there really a speck of love through all of this. And as the main character is, you know, fighting in order to, like, get his mom a surgery or something, and, like, get enough money so he can, like, spend time with his daughter when she has to move to America, like, never once do you see any of those motivations in his character while he's, like, there. You just see him performing the tasks in this routine video-esque, video game-esque fashion that is no better than PUBG or Fortnite. It dares to end on the note that the protagonist who who ultimately wins the game is going to uh, fight back against the system. He dyes his hair red and he uh, finds an opportunity to potentially go back and stop the game somehow. And that's it. We see the chance. Battle Royale tells you to hashire. It tells you to run. And this just sees a character recognize that he's going to fight back. But it gives you no real sense of any power. And there's no living human emotion behind it to make it feel real. So it ultimately just feels like another step in this ultimate capitalist trap that the show as a product is working as. And that product, I want to reiterate, is seemingly designed and curated to molest as many people as possible into watching and accepting it with a static, placid stare, because it is directed with the same kind of, like, Netflix, like, vibrant color sheen that makes really well for GIFs, which explains why these characters in the masks, like, have been showing up endlessly as memes, or, like, the big Korean girl robot keeps showing up on my timeline, like some haunted Laura Palmer specter that I just can't get out of my head. With all these colors and the really obvious design choices of these uh, inverted stairs and people... It's all of these extremely visual metaphors that keep pointing to capitalism bad. Okay, so... What now? What now? What are we going to do about that? I, I can't just sit here and watch you tell me that things are bad when I'm already aware because... Unlike maybe a lot of the people who watch this show, like, I have to live and struggle. And this Battle Royale format should be representing your struggle in small scale and pushing it to its extremes. And instead, this represents the small scale in an utter slog in which it reduces all of the intricacies and capacity for enormous human feeling into a easily consumable, digestible packet of bright pink colors and shapes on masks. I honestly think this is representative of a larger problem in South Korean media, and maybe this would be the most problematic I get on this episode, but between K-pop and something like Parasite, all of this faux capitalist critique and all of this perceived artfulness and um, practiced technique into presenting an image that is appealing, all of these bright colors these perfectly made-up people, these attractive individuals, all of it is just this sheen of subduing you and making you feel okay about what you actually have to go through. Because if you can swallow Squid Game and you can eat it up like all of its candy colors and all of this nonsense Fisher-Price palette, if you can swallow that, it's supposed to, you know make you feel like it's okay to be able to go on another day in the traumas of the corporate universe. If you can see that it's bad, 
because Squid Game told you it's bad and because Parasite told you it's bad, then that's supposed to be enough for you. That should be fine. Just to, you know, recognize that this isn't good. And a lot of South Korean media is presenting this soullessness to me. And I'm sure that somewhere um, there is glistening Korean art that pushes against this. And I know at least off the top of my head, things like The Handmaiden are truly transgressive and interesting and full of the erotic instinct. And yet, I just keep looking in the face of something like Parasite and something like this, these capitalist critiques that are ultimately capitalist products that do nothing and just say that things are bad. If there's anything I like about this, um, it's that uh, South Korean homophobia is preserved (laughs) because uh, we get a really delightful sequence when one of the VIP people who uh, funds these games uh, kind of uh, attempts to rape the hot young uh, twink cop. And that's honestly the only honest thing that happens in the entire show. The only true moment of realness is in South Korea being homophobic, which, you know, great. Based South Korea, at least we have that going for them. Honestly, the only time I really sat up and, like, looked at the screen was when I watched this big, fat, white man, like, try to take advantage of this, like, beautiful, like, twink cop. (laughs) And it was, like, the cabal of, like, evil VIPs who were... Oh, like, doing this for their sexual satisfaction. Like, that's true. And that they're gay is, like, also true. But if the extent of your reality is, like, a little bit of homophobia, like, there surely must be more that can be done. Man, I don't know. I hope hope I've been able to say this all cohesively. But it doesn't matter if I wasn't able to, because one person did. In 2015, my favorite living director, Sono Shion, directed a movie called Tag in English, and in Japanese it's called Rieru Onigoko, Real Tag. Previously, he'd done work like Suicide Circle, in which he depicted leagues of uh, young teenagers trapped in a death cycle and uh, submitted to cosmic slaughter, as it were. But with Tag, he kind of revisits the idea of these teens stuck in a death loop. And he's uh, technically adapting a novel by the same name. It was also made into several other feature films uh, that he has nothing to do with. And with this iteration, he casts uh, Reina Trendle, who is probably best known for being one of the talents hosting Terrace House, as a young girl whose life is also stuck in one of these death games. She takes multiple identities over the course of the film, first as a high school student on a trip, much like the kids in the beginning on the bus in Battle Royale, and they're sliced into pieces by the wind, and all she can do is run, because she's being chased by uh, this demonic wind that keeps cutting her friends apart, and it keeps manifesting in increasingly bizarre ways. She's chased by monsters at a wedding, 
at, at a wedding uh, altar. She's um, shot at and fired at by her teachers with guns in one really visceral scene where the staff uh, declares warfare on the obnoxious young girls of society. And she's virtually stuck in a perverse tag. Another game theory simulacrum of life reduced to a simplicity rule thing. And we have to watch her just run in the game of tag for the course of the movie. And unlike Squid Game, the film is daring enough to give her a degucci, an exit because it's ultimately revealed that this has all just been some perverse video game, this uh, death sport of old men who uh, like to play with the lives of people for their entertainment. They like to watch these struggles of humanity in their most plain and basic, unappealing forms. They like to watch and they like to engage and they get off on it. And so when this character is finally able to sort of escape the system, she realizes that there actually is no real escape in the traditional sense. She can't go and destroy the system herself like the Hunger Games does or like Squid Games positions itself to do. What she has to do is she has to delete the character entirely. She's just the avatar being handled with by other people put into endless dioramas of pain and suffering and instead of letting it go on any longer she stabs herself with the pen and she deletes the character there's no feasible way for this tortured character to exist anymore it had its place it had its time and it had its meaning but if there can be no more meaning derived of it and if it has no worth and no emotionality, and no reality to it at all, then all you can do is stab it with the pen and delete it. 